The reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Thank you, Megan. I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open, um, Mark chapter 8, as we look at this passage together. Um, But before we do that, let's uh, pray. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we have been praising you already um, this morning, and we have been praising you for all that you are to us. Uh, And we know all that you are to us because of your word. Um, You've revealed yourself to us in your word. You have spoken to us. Uh, You've spoken to us not only in your written word that we have before us now, but also in the word Jesus Christ, who is the perfect representation of who you are. Uh, And so we pray that as we turn our attention to your word and as we think once more about who Jesus is and what that means for us, and that we would see more of your glory, more of your love for us, more of your faithfulness to all that you have promised. We pray that your Spirit who inspired these words would help us to know that, to understand that, and to apply that in our lives. Amen. My eyesight is deteriorating. It is unmistakably getting worse. Um, Now, I don't want to be too dramatic about it because I'm not even at the stage where I need glasses yet, 
But the fact is, my eyesight is weakening and doing so noticeably. It struck me as I was in the car driving along, all of a sudden I realized I couldn't quite read that license plate that was a wee bit too far in front of me, or, or the road sign needed to be a whole lot closer to me before I could see what it said. Uh, and so if you're driving around Antrim and there's a black Seat tailgating you, I apologize. That's just me trying to read the road sign in front of you. My, my eyesight is deteriorating. It is getting worse. And many of you are maybe experiencing the same thing. But for readers of the gospel according to Mark, and for the disciples in the gospel according to Mark, it is the opposite. Their eyesight is not deteriorating. Their eyesight, metaphorically speaking, is improving. Mark wants his readers, along with the disciples in his gospel, to keep their eyes on Jesus. And as they do so, well, they come to see Jesus with greater clarity. They come to see Jesus for who he is. Not only do we see Jesus for who he is, but we then come to reckon with what that means for us as his disciples. The, the central section of Mark runs from the beginning of our reading, chapter 8, verse 22, the whole way through to chapter 10, verse 52. And in this central section of Mark, Mark is recording Jesus Christ crystallizing who he is and what that means for his disciples. And it seems to me that that would be a fitting message for us to reflect upon on this first day of a new year, who Jesus is and what that means for us. And so as we inch into this middle section of Mark, we're invited to see Jesus for who he is. And in doing so, the text asks three questions of us. Are we seeing Jesus clearly? Are we speaking about Jesus plainly? Are we following Jesus fully? First of all, as we witness the blind man of Bethsaida seeing clearly, we are then posed the question, are we seeing Jesus clearly? Are we seeing Jesus clearly? Mark 8, 22 to 26 records a miracle for us. Let's reread that just to remind ourselves of it. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This miracle, like all miracles recorded in the Gospels, evidences who Jesus is. He is the one who makes the blind see. This miracle reveals the true identity of Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. Listen to these verses from Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall a lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. These verses from Isaiah promise that the glory of God will be seen in the blind being given sight, the deaf being given hearing, the, the lame being given the ability to walk, the mute being given the ability to speak. 
And this is what Jesus is doing here. He is giving the blind sight. God's glory is being revealed. Now, there are a few details that that stand out as we look at this miracle. First of all, there there is an intimacy and an empathy expressed in Jesus' physical contact with the blind man. Touch is mentioned in verses 22, 23, and 25. Jesus has no qualms about being close and intimate with people. And I imagine that that would be particularly appreciated by someone who was blind. They, They might not be able to see Jesus, but at the very least, Jesus touched them. They could feel him. Second, this miracle is accomplished in two stages. Jesus apparently needs two attempts to heal this blind man. We're going to return to that in just a moment. Uh, The third feature that stands out is that Jesus sends the blind man home immediately, forbidding him to enter the village. One commentator suggests that, that not entering the village is another way of saying, give up begging, walk straight home without a guide. That way, people will know you've been healed. I think there's something to that suggestion. Don't go back to the town where you used to beg. Don't look for someone to lead you back home. Go straight home yourself. Show that you're healed. But it's this second detail that I want to return to. Does Jesus need two attempts to to heal this blind man because his power is waning? Did did Jesus get the the, the miracle wrong the first time round? What's going on here? Why does Jesus need two attempts to heal this blind man? Well, it's helpful to first note that this miracle is recorded only here. No other gospels have this miracle recorded. Only Mark records this miracle. Second, we should note that there is another blind man healed at the end of this middle section of Mark. Remember I said this is the middle section of Mark. It begins here with this blind man being healed, and then it ends in chapter 10, verse 52, where blind Bartimaeus is healed. The fact that this middle section, which calls us to focus our eyes on Jesus, begins and ends with blind men seeing clearly, well, I don't think that's an accident. Third, this middle section of Mark follows an exchange in which Jesus questions his disciples about their understanding of who he is. Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through to 21, there Jesus asks his disciples twice, do you not understand? Have you not grasped who I am? Is the penny not dropping for you? Uh, And for all of those reasons, I think that this miracle serves a literary purpose. This miracle illustrates what is about to happen with the disciples. They are about to see Jesus for who he is. They're about to see him clearly. But this process isn't going to happen just like that. This process is not going to be complete in just one step. It's going to take time. It'll happen slowly. Uh, And so what we have here is not merely a miracle, as amazing as that is. What we have here is an acted parable. The disciples, and, and hopefully us, Mark's readers, are about to begin seeing clearly. It won't be instant. It'll take time, but we're about to begin to see clearly. Just like And you'll have experienced this a few weeks ago in the cold snap. Just as it takes your car window time to be fog-free, to the frozen car window to clear in the morning, so those who keep their eyes on Jesus 
as he is revealed in Mark, will over time come to see him for who he is. With patience, we will see with increasing clarity who Jesus Christ is. One commentator writes, the the ability to see both physically and spiritually is a gift of God, not of human ability alone. It is a gift of God. Uh, And this is where we must start as we seek to apply this text to our lives. Any clarity of thought about who Jesus is, well, it's a gift of God. Any understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, it is a gift of God. Any conviction about trusting in Jesus Christ is a gift of God. Seeing clearly is a miracle that God works in our lives. And it's therefore to God that we should turn. If we want to see Jesus clearly, we go to the source. Otherwise, we're tempted to rely on our own imaginations or to listen to people who speculate about Jesus. But if there is only one place we should be going to for that information, let's go to that place, God himself. And so I'm going to encourage you to do two things that you are encouraged to do again and again and again in church. Pray and read your Bible. And it sounds so simple, but this is where we go. Pray. Begin by praying. If clarity of vision is granted by God, then ask God for clarity of vision. Pray to God to reveal Jesus to you. Follow prayer with Scripture. God's Word is the only perfect presentation of who Jesus is. If clarity of vision is granted by God, then read the words that He has spoken about Jesus Christ. Pray and read. Read and pray. Making the blind see is miraculous, and yet it is simple for God. And these verses in Mark pose us this very simple question, are you seeing Jesus clearly? If not, or if you would like to see him more clearly, then pray and read the Bible. But it comes with this warning. Don't panic if clarity doesn't come immediately. Don't panic if on the 15th of January you feel like you can't see Jesus any clearly because sometimes it takes time. Like the fogged up car window, it takes time for that clarity to come. Indeed, We might even need more information to aid that clarity. And so we continue in our passage. The second thing that we see in this passage is, as we witness Peter confess Jesus as the Christ, we are then posed the question, are we speaking about Jesus plainly? Are we speaking about Jesus plainly? Peter thought he was speaking plainly, but as we will see, at this stage, only Jesus is speaking plainly. The the conversation in this passage is initiated by Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verses 27 and 28. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. The disciples summarized the popular cultural response to Jesus. 
He's understood to be a prophet of some description. Now, on the one hand, to be admitted to the prophetic category, well, that's a tremendous honor. On the other hand, however, Jesus is so much more that to be labeled a prophet is actually insulting. The popular opinions about Jesus, well, they were close, but they were incorrect. Jesus is not merely content with the popular opinion of who he is, though. Jesus is concerned with what his disciples think. Look at verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Here, Peter speaks on behalf of the 12, and he confesses Jesus as the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. In short, Jesus' disciples are saying that he is the promised one of the Old Testament, the one long promised by God. And they are correct with this title, Christ. But as transpires, they have loaded this correct title with incorrect information. Verses 29 through to 32. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus knows that his disciples are not comprehending all that his messiahship means. He therefore requests that they tell no one that they have confessed him as the Christ, at least not yet, not until they get it right. Jesus then proceeds to explain what being the Messiah means. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. With these words, it's clear that Jesus will cut a different profile from the popular stereotype. The Jews were looking for a Messiah bloodstained in victory, not in defeat. But this is not who Jesus is. His Messiahship is of a very different type. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The divine perspective was different from the disciples' perspective. But note, at the beginning of verse 32, we are told that Jesus is speaking plainly about these things. And in doing so, he's correcting the disciples in their mistaken understanding. He's saying that the Messiah's victory comes through death. One of my nephews loves Julia Donaldson's stories, and I'm sure if you've watched BBC One at all over the holidays, you'll have seen some of them. The Gruffalo, The Gruffalo's Child, Zog, The Highway Rat, Stickman, The Snail and the Whale, and a number of other ones. He loves listening to them. He loves reading them. He loves watching them. One year he got all of the characters of the Gruffalo, and he could act it out from memory by himself. He's pretty much memorized the entirety of all of these stories, which you would think is great until it comes to story time in school. 
And I've heard that if the teacher or classroom assistant gets it slightly wrong, he's quick to correct them. That's not right. You've got it wrong. That's not right. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. Peter proclaims Jesus the Messiah, except that's not right. You've got it wrong. He's thinking that he's speaking about Jesus plainly, but he's not. It's all confused and jumbled up. Uh, And we ourselves must reckon with this question. Are we speaking about Jesus plainly? Do we have it right? As I listen to people speak about Jesus, I think there's three common areas in which I find them lacking a plain presentation of who Jesus is. The first is in the area of Jesus' humanity and deity. People seem to struggle to to hold these two clear assertions together. Scripture is clear. Jesus is fully God, and He is fully human. He is both. And it might be because we can't fully comprehend how these two things work together, but Scripture is clear. We must hold Him as fully God and fully human. If we are to speak plainly about Jesus, if we are to speak biblically about Jesus— We must proclaim him both as fully God and fully man. Second, in the area of Jesus' gentleness and sternness, people likewise struggle to see Jesus as both Lord and Savior. He's either seen as meek and mild, which when translated really means he's this impotent cheerleader who supports you in whatever you want to do, or else he's harsh and domineering, demanding complete obedience Otherwise, there will be immediate punishment. Some see Jesus as this inoffensive yes man who simply cheers us on. He he really doesn't want to do anything to endanger you falling out with him. Others see him as some pedantic traffic warden just waiting to catch you. But if we are to speak plainly about Jesus, we must present them as both Savior and Lord, both the one who serves and the one who is our master. He's both. And then third, in the area of victory and death, my experience has been that people are prone to talk more about the victory Jesus brings than the way he brings it. We struggle with what one commentator terms the divine logic of triumph through death. We're happy to talk about eternal life, but not the eternal one's life snuffed out for that. We're happy to talk about ascending to heaven, but do so without proper uh, speech about heaven's descent to us. We can be embarrassed about a Savior who's bloodied and beaten and crucified. Like Peter, we want a different Messiah, one bloodstained in victory. But that victory is won through death. And so Jesus implicitly challenges us here to be found speaking plainly about him. And even if we can't match all of this together, we must hold these truths in tension. Let us speak plainly about Jesus Christ. And so if we see clearly, and if we speak plainly, the the final step is following fully. And this question is the next one posed by our text. Are we following Jesus fully? Jesus teaches those listening to him all that following him entails. 
chapter 8, verse 34, through to the first verse of chapter 9. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's important to, to note here in verse 34 that Jesus has called the crowd to him. He's called everyone to hear this teaching. Uh, and so all that is present in these verses, it's not some special level of discipleship reserved for the 12. It is the shape of discipleship for all who would follow Jesus Christ. And there are three key elements in it. First, in order to follow Jesus fully, we must deny ourselves. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is painful, but following Jesus is not about us and our needs. Following Jesus is not about getting all that we ever wanted. No, following Jesus is about denying ourselves refusing to follow our own impulses, desires, and preferences. Instead, we are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We are to give our lives to Him. Second, in order to follow Jesus fully, we must lose our life, verses 35 to 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This too is painful. Now, Do not misunderstand, this is not a call to to literally die, at least not here in Northern Ireland in our context. It is a call to pursue Jesus and his gospel so fervently that we are willing to lose our lives for it. Jesus is saying, do not protect what you have in this age at the expense of what I have prepared for you in the age to come. And then third, in order to follow Jesus fully, we must own him. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We must be unafraid to own Jesus as our Savior and Lord, no matter the cost. And so what we're seeing here is that the shape of Jesus' Messiahship is also the pattern of discipleship. Bearing a cross, losing our life, despising the opinion of worldly people so that we might remain loyal to the one whose testimony to our worth alone counts. And after all of this straightforward teaching, Jesus then leaves us with a cryptic sentence in chapter 9, verse 1. It's difficult to know what exactly seeing the kingdom of God coming with power means. The the most satisfying answer to my mind is that this sentence points initially to the transfiguration, because that happens next in Mark's narrative, but ultimately it's pointing to the crucifixion to which he has been alluding. 
No matter what seeing the kingdom of God coming in power means, however, the significance is clear. Fully following Jesus is worth it. Why? Because his kingdom is coming with power. It's worth it. Can you remember back to the last youth service we had here in November where we heard that tremendous testimony from that man who had been a big player in the drug scene here in Northern Ireland? For, for 25 years, he'd been leading a life of violent and extortionate crime. He was raking in more than a million pounds every year. Yes, I did the maths, adding it all up. And yet he shelled out no money for the luxurious items with which he filled his house because they all fell off the back of a lorry. But then God saved him. Then he became a disciple of Jesus. He got rid of the girl he was living with. He got rid of the drugs that he owned. He gave away all of the money that he had earned through criminal behavior. He removed all of the stolen goods from his home. That is to say, he removed everything from his home. And he passionately pursued Jesus. It's a modern day Zacchaeus, isn't it? But this man's commitment to following Jesus should not amaze us. It shouldn't amaze us. Why? Because it is the commitment that Jesus demands from all of us. What these verses are teaching us is that Jesus very simply demands our all. The claim of Jesus is a total and exclusive one. The whole person stands under Christ's claim. There should be nothing withheld from Jesus. There should be no hesitations in following him. There should be no distractions from walking in the way of Jesus. And I could spend the next 15 or 20 minutes listing all the things that might distract us, but perhaps it's simply enough to ask you this morning, what is holding you back from following Jesus fully? What is it? What are you clinging to more preciously than Jesus? It's a great question to start a new year with. What is holding you back from following Jesus fully? Given all that he's done, given who he is, Jesus justifiably demands all of us, all of the time. But it's all worth it. Why? Well, because earthly success, prestige, and riches cannot compare with eternal life in the presence of God. And for those of us who follow Jesus, that's what is ours. Eternal life in the presence of God. Back in 2012, four years after breaking onto the athletic scene with his double sprint gold in the Beijing Olympics, Usain Bolt was locked out of a stadium in Jamaica. Despite being Jamaican sporting royalty, the gatekeeper did not recognize Usain Bolt. There's a video on YouTube. He closes the gate on his face. You stay out there with the plebs. You're not getting in. As soon as someone points this out to the gatekeeper, well... He's embarrassed, he's full of remorse and shame, and he apologizes to you, Usain Bolt. But that's the danger that we face with Jesus, not recognizing him for who he is. He's just one more face among the crowds. This passage in Mark is all about seeing Jesus for who he is. 
It's about seeing Jesus clearly, speaking about him plainly, and following Jesus fully. And in doing so, it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus is the long-promised God in the flesh who dies for in our place to bring forgiveness for the past, reconciliation in the present, and a glorious hope for the future. And so as we begin this new year, may our prayer be that we might see him for who he is. Let's pray. Our Father, by the power and presence of your Spirit, help us to see Jesus clearly, to see him as he is presented in Scripture. Emboldened and encouraged by Scripture's presentation of Jesus, enable us to speak plainly about him to all we come into contact with. And finally, Father, empower us to follow Jesus fully all the days of our lives for our good and for your glory. Amen.